0: We start today with the proposed handgun ban in the cities of Vancouver and Surrey. Now, yesterday, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's government gave the green light to municipalities to ban handguns in their cities. Here's Trudeau speaking yesterday.
1: Today's new legislation, we will also support municipalities to ban handguns through bylaws restricting their possession, storage, and transportation. We're backing up the cities with serious federal and criminal penalties to enforce these bylaws, including jail time for people who violate these municipal rules.
0: All right, Trudeau, yesterday, let's discuss now with my guest, Jack Hundile, Surrey City Councillor. He's a former Surrey RCMP officer for 25 years. Pleased to welcome him back to the show. Councillor, thank you for coming on. Thank you, Mike. Okay, we already seen uh, Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart... Very enthusiastic about a potential handgun ban in the city of Vancouver and in Surrey, Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum yesterday saying same thing. he would like to see a handgun ban in Surrey. Councillor, where do you stand on this one?
2: Well, I think the question is if we're looking to stop gang violence um, in the lower mainland, uh, will this what will this do to help alleviate that? Um, yeah. And I think this is part of a false narrative. Of, of this uh, proposed um, legislation coming from Ottawa. Uh, first of all, you know, I think any elected official and generally the public vast majority will look at anything to support public safety um, right. and anything to do with, uh, with gun violence. So I think that's very clear. And, and the comment made was a little bit earlier, you know, all the polling indicates this. But, you know, we're looking at large cities that have issues with gang violence. And certainly, in my experience, um, and those of my, uh, my my past colleagues that are still all working, is very few of these gun and and gang violence incidents that we're seeing throughout the lower mainland are perpetrated by individuals that um, that have legally um, owned guns. yeah, well, so we just
0: they're, saw they're, we just yeah. saw another uh, we just saw another shooting just last night in Surrey. so we've got a gang war going on we saw another targeted hit. Last night, mm-hmm. do you think if we if you banned handguns in the city, of Surrey, you sound very dubious that that would stop the gang war?
2: Well, absolutely, because let's look at what the root cause of the gang war uh, is, right? You know, we have uh, repeat offenders that are using firearms that are already prohibited. Uh, and they're already prohibited from possessing those. So let me look at the uh, let's look at the, the rules around and the uh, the sentencing. Let's start enforcing some of the minimum sentencing around this, right? Let's look at. Um, you know, the firearms labs for tracing and building data banks so law enforcement uh, can get those resources. We can invest more into that. So when we do have a firearm that's used illegally, uh, we can start building up the database for that and seeing where these guns are coming from. We already know a vast majority of the guns that are used in violence here in Canada are illegally obtained uh, sure. and coming from the U.S. So why don't we focus a bit more on enforcing um, uh, enforcement at the at okay. the borders and and surrey has two international border crossings here right. as
0: well yeah okay despite that of course we saw yesterday surrey mayor doug mccallum enthusiastic about the idea of a handgun ban in surrey we asked the mayor to come on the show today he, he was not available uh let me ask you this with the mayor saying that this seems like a good idea i i, I wonder if there's any rationale behind it, like I think the public would get behind it if they could be convinced that it could stop a lot of crime. Like, do you know in the city of Surrey last year, let's take last year, for example, in Surrey, were there uh, many uh, crimes committed by handgun crimes committed by legal handgun owners in the city of Surrey last year?
2: Uh, for the ones where we do know, where there's a definitive yes or no for that at this point, uh, I've not heard and asked that question. In fact, uh, yesterday, one of my colleagues at uh, Surrey detachment here. And he said, uh, uh, no. We, we, so what's, what's that? Said zero? That one was, well, yeah, was so far zero. Zero, uh, okay. We have to look into it.
0: Okay, but, what, uh, what about... You know, those hand- are,
2: there's still ongoing investigations, though, so we don't know about those.
0: Yeah, because this is the thing. It, it sort of goes to the point you raised earlier. Like, if you're going to take away handguns from legal handgun owners, is that going to stop crime? I mean, it, and it sounds like last year in the city of Surrey, there were zero handgun crimes committed by legal gun owners so I think that's important to know we need more information on that what about like some people some some people say well what about a stolen handguns like you might have you may be a perfectly law-abiding responsible gun owner handgun owner Mm -hmm. but maybe someone will steal your handgun and go out and commit a crime do you know in the city of Surrey last year were there uh, any crimes gun handgun crimes committed in Surrey last year with stolen 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 handguns stolen in Surrey
2: Yeah, absolutely uh, you know i don't know the exact numbers offhand but I, I go back to my previous experience of working here there were every year i'm sure there were there were uh, offenses people breaking into the homes of legitimate gun owners uh taking you know not only probably handguns but also uh, long barrel guns as well um and and you're going to see that so if you look at a place like surrey uh, or any municipality like in in canada we have over 3700 municipalities all with invisible borders you're right. So, so how does that even work, translating across a border, say from uh, from you know Scott Road over to Delta to Surrey and back and forth?
0: Well, well you just yeah. anticipated my last my next question. How would this thing work? Like, your what's your understanding of it? If they did ban handguns in Surrey and you own a handgun, would you have to would you have to turn it into the police or leave town or what?
2: That we don't even know yet. Yeah. The devil's in the, in the details here you get sort of these motherhood statements coming, these large political statements, and, uh, and you know, how does that actually work? And what's the impact? How are you going to enforce this? Currently yeah. in British Columbia, uh, most of our bylaw officers aren't even uh, uh, peace officers. So now you're going to put the responsibility on an already tasked police organization, whether it's, you uh, know, RCMP or municipal, um, and, and as you see, dwindling daughter- dollars being put towards them. And in a case of a place like Surrey, you have a majority on council that, you uh, you know for the term for the 4 years they're here in office uh they're not even going to uh, invest in any more any any more police officers into the city of Surrey right,
0: right. speaking to Surrey city councilor Jack Hundal councilor you were a police officer for a long time 25 years with mm-hmm. the RCMP, when I speak to police officers on these issues around gun control, I, I sometimes get a sort of a divided or a split response. Like sometimes I hear police officers say it wouldn't really solve or really wouldn't help in, in the fight against crime. But other officers I've talked to over the years who, who tell me they're all for getting rid of getting rid of guns, like the fewer guns, the better. What, what are your thoughts? Like, what do you think most uh, most police officers? How, how do most police officers feel about this? Do you think?
2: Well, police officers, first, I mean, they're the front line of seeing uh, the outcomes of, of violent gun crime, right? So there's that emotional piece as well. Uh, no one wants to see that. No one wants to deal with that. But also very pragmatic, too, that the majority of these crimes that are committed are committed by people that are not law-abiding to begin with. So it's, it's, it's kind of it's a tough spot to be in. Um, now, we do know that uh, uh, there's been a lot of problems with the gun registry, uh, you know, going back to even, uh, you know, uh, registering every single firearm, then getting away from that and going to only handguns now. So that's a great question and one I don't really have an answer for is that how is this even going to be enforced and enforceable? And how comfortable do people showing up to police officers banging on their door saying, look, I know you have a registered okay. leader but you're, you're no criminal record, but we've got to take your gun.
0: All right, welcome back to the show. As we continue talking about a possible handgun ban in the city of Surrey and the city of Vancouver, 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Star 9898 on your cell. Surrey City Councilor Jack Hundile is my guest. Let's go to your calls. Nathan calling from the B.C. Interior. Hey, Nathan.
2: Yeah. Hey, guys. Yeah, I think we should
1: absolutely
0: ban illegal handguns. Okay, I think I I lost him there. Uh, We'll try and get him back. Let's go to Scott and Surrey. Hey, Scott. Hey, good morning, Mike and uh, Councillor Hundal. Right now, I'm
3: registered. I'm licensed. I've done all my right things. You know that I have to do. Um, the only people that have that information are the RCMP down in New Brunswick, and obviously, it's shared with the RCMP out here. Every day, I go through a check. Everybody, you know, pretty well knows the story. Nowhere did I hear yesterday that. Uh, Justin with his gun ban is going to allow the RCMP to share that information. Cast your mind back a few years ago to the failed long gun registry and what a screw-up that was about whether the RCMP could share information or couldn't. I mean, all of a sudden, I'm legal, and yet if my information is given away illegally by the RCMP, I've got people
0: banging on my door. Well, they can, they can certainly change the law. Councillor, your thoughts on that?
2: Well, Scott's absolutely right. The, the whole registry with the long gun was an absolute shamble because you'd get these requests coming from uh, from New Brunswick saying, look, can you go and check uh, uh, if Jack still has his, uh, his rifles and his handguns? And it was really uh, uh, hard to enforce that, virtually impossible, in fact. So you wouldn't even know if those guns are still in your city or not. So the data itself that you're going to be using here is going to be somewhat flawed to begin with. Second of all, uh, there is no mechanism in place currently, and Scott's right, um, that right, uh, that the Prime Minister talked about yesterday that says that, you know, we can share the information and to what level and what security do you need around the information.
0: Okay, let's uh, keep taking your phone call. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 on your cell. Todd in Vancouver. Hi, Todd. Hi, good morning.
4: Right. Um, I just wanted to point out that the RPAL owners uh, are, by the RCMP standards, the most law-abiding citizens in all of Canada. You know, that in itself should say, you know, volumes. I also like to say the whole argument about, oh, if someone comes in and
5: steals my
4: gun, yeah. that, all you know, our, my property should be taken away. Well, what if we applied that to vehicles? If my vehicle was stolen and used in a crime, so are we going to steal all the or take all the vehicles from people? It's a charter rights thing.
0: Okay, Todd, thanks for the call. Well, maybe there'll be a charter fight over it. Let's go to keep taking your calls. Alan in Surrey. Hey, Alan.
1: Hey, Mike. How you doing? Good. Um, Yes, I'm the range director at Semiamu Fishing Game Club. And uh, this whole idea of a handgun ban in Surrey, it's completely targeting the wrong people. I, Mm. I see a lot of, Great people in the, in, the, in the city come there, um, well, before COVID, uh, come there and have a great time, you know, on Tuesday and Wednesday nights. And that's going to end up being in jeopardy when they start targeting these law-abiding people. We've got doctors, lawyers, plumbers, mechanics, seniors, you know, all kinds of great people coming out and enjoying the, the nice, nice activity of target shooting. We have police officers coming. <laughs> they have to yeah. get practice in before they do their qualifying. And that's going to be destroyed if they start doing something like this. And that's going to do absolutely nothing to stop the gang shootings. Nothing at all.
0: Okay, I'm really glad you called in. Uh, do you have gun storage facilities? There? Like, Are people allowed to store their handguns at your range?
1: We do not have the facilities. We are licensed for it by the RCMP, yeah. but yeah. we do not have facilities currently for that.
0: Yeah, have you ever heard of anyone, like a licensed handgun owner, had their handgun stolen?
1: Uh, no, not personally, no. I yeah. just hear the odd report here and there, but I think the numbers are really small. Like, yeah. I attended a talk by the RCMP in Vancouver, uh, PDA, they had a joint gang ta- uh, task force that I had to talk with at, and the gang situation here in Vancouver is unique, that's a that's a whole, I would fill your whole hour show, just on gangs and, and, the, and the GVRD, and how they work together. Um, they bring in the guns they need. You know, it's the stealing guns is not a huge thing for them. If they happen to come across some, sure, they'll take them. But they bring okay. in what they need.
0: Alan, thanks a lot for the call. Let's squeeze another one in here. This is in Kelowna. Hi.
3: Good morning, Mike. Uh, Hi. I just want to say that I've, I've been a gun owner since I was about 15, which is many, many, many years ago now. Um, I have long guns and handguns. Um, when Bill C-68 came in in 1994, there were stipulations in that about safe storage and safe handling and uh, ammunition and all that sort of stuff. Um, One of the other things that was in that bill was if a handgun or any gun was used in the commission of a crime, there would be automatic four years in jail. To this date... I don't know of anyone that has ever been charged under that
0: clause. Okay, Svear, th- th- thank, th- thank you for the call. We're just running out of time. Let me get Councillor Hundau's take on that as a former police officer. Councillor, go ahead. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, so I mean, that's, that goes back and speaks to the history of all the flaws that we've had with, with gun legislation that's regulated out of Ottawa and trying to fix a really what is a local or community issue here. And uh, that caller is absolutely uh, accurate that, um, you know, the lax behavior of the court system when it comes to gun laws, especially involving uh, violent gun crimes, uh, that you present a a very clear uh, danger to the public,
0: is often overlooked. Counselor, thank you for coming on today. Thank you. All right. Welcome back to the show. Here we go now with the continuing fight over the Trans Mountain Pipeline. $12.6 billion dollar project. Of course, it's owned by the federal government. You and I own this thing. It would pump heavy crude oil from the Alberta oil sands to an export terminal in Burnaby for export by tanker. This pipeline is approved. Construction is continuing, but. The battle over this pipeline is not over. Okay, let's discuss with my guests now. Got both sides of it for you. Two great guests. Tim, Timothy Kovar on the line. He is an environmental activist opposed to the pipeline. He is living in a tree uh, blocking the construction of the pipeline. He's been up there for two months. Tim, can you hear me okay?
6: Good morning, Mike. Uh, sorry, there's uh, this noise because I'm right beside the uh, train tracks in the highway. But, yeah, I can hear
0: you okay. Okay, I got you loud and clear. Thanks for doing this. Also on the line is Chris Sankey. He's the president of the Blackfish Group of Companies. He supports the pipeline. Chris, thanks for jumping on.
4: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Okay, you bet, Chris. Timothy, let me go to you first. A lot of people will be astonished to hear you've been up in this tree for two months. Can you tell me the story here? Like, what's going on? When did you go up in that tree, and why are you doing that?
6: Um. So, uh, around mid-December... Uh, I went up the tree to prevent the pipeline. I'm with a group that's called um, Save the Planet, Stop TMX. Um, And the idea is to occupy the trees so they can't cut the trees uh, because they need to cut the trees before they put the pipeline in the ground. Uh, So we think that it's so important that this pipeline doesn't go by the residents, by the schools, um, by and then the tank farm as well is is highly problematic. So there's like there's two big problems. The one big problem is the local problem with the residents, and the um, the second problem is the downstream effect of consuming this bitumen and okay. producing those green greenhouse gases, which okay. will endanger uh, like so many people around the world. Like trigger mass migrations because of, uh, climate change.
0: Right. What's it like living up in that tree? You've been up there for two months. Is it freezing up there? I mean, what's it like for you there?
6: It is freezing. Yeah. So I have a bucket of water over here and there's ice. <laughs> there's ice in this bucket. Uh, and so I'm in a tent. It's, uh, it's quite difficult. It's very loud. Um, but the cold is the, is the biggest, uh, biggest enemy so far. Okay. So I'm, myself I'm into like four sleeping bags at the moment
0: <laughs> okay let me go to Chris thank Chris you support the pipeline can you give me your give me your best your best case here for supporting the pipeline why do you support it
4: well you know, first of all um, uh, putting yourself in danger like that is uh, completely unnecessary not only is he endangering his life he's endangering the lives of others and I highly don't recommend that Um, I support it because uh, 129 Indigenous communities do support it or don't oppose it. Uh, It's also been approved by the federal government. It's deemed to be the natural interest. Uh, After years of study, it wasn't like they just decided to do this today. It's also uh, the project allows for Canada to get a fair price uh, for its oil, being able to uh, sell it to other countries. Right now, effectively, it's only the U.S. market. So the U.S. market is yeah. completely dictating to us what happens. It's completely unacceptable. Further think, to this, a yeah. large number of First Nations were engaged in this project since 2012. Okay, and you actually...
0: Hey, Chris, let me ask you about that, because I know that you, you're a, you're an Indigenous guy yourself. You're a former councillor with the Colam First Nation in, in, uh, near Prince Rupert, correct? Correct. Yes, yeah, that is correct. Why do you like a lot of people might think like a lot of indigenous people or first nations are opposed to the pipeline, but I, I know a lot of them support it too though, right?
4: That is correct. Yes, we we're, we're in support of responsible resource development to the highest environmental
6: standards. We wouldn't have yeah. it any other way.
0: Okay, Timothy, uh, well, I, what I, Timothy? I go yeah. ahead.
6: Yeah. Yeah, I have something to say, but I have so many things to say about this. So, um what you're raising uh I think Chris, right? Um, The the point that you're raising the most is the economic point. Um, And it it was shown by the Canadian Energy Board that the body that's supposed to approve uh, the pipeline, and that is uh, strongly in favor of the pipeline, has said just a few months ago, like I think it's November, that if more climate laws were to take um, actions because of climate change, then the pipeline would be deemed unnecessary and on economical. Uh, there's, there's a lot of proofs of um, the fact that this pipeline will not create more money. For example, because, uh, so the, the pipeline is, the goal of this pipeline is to carry uh, a lot of this, this bitumen abroad, but so far it's only going to the states, and it's not going to the Asian market, because the Asian market is only buying the bitumen that we're selling at the very, very low prices, so only they- when it's it's selling at a very low price. It's going to Asian Timothy,
7: market.
0: Timothy, Timothy, let yeah. me let me ask you this: uh, Chris is an an indigenous guy, and a lot of First Nations on this pipeline route ha- support this project. Uh-huh. What What do you say to in, Indigenous people and First Nations who are looking to this project for economic development and jobs and some and some hope in communities that are struggling with with poverty and 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 lots of other problems? And you know, you're in a tree for the last couple of months trying to block their project that they see as kind of hope for their community? Like, what do you say to them?
6: I say it's normal to look for economic growth for your community, and I respect this. What I want to say is that be careful of where you put your money and where you put your effort, because there is no future in fossil fuels. Canada is trying to put, like, desperately its last dices into fossil fuels, but we are a changing economy worldwide. We are moving away from fossil fuels, so the more we okay. will put our dice into this economy, the more yep. we will suffer, including all the people who invest their energy into this pipeline.
4: I'll Chris give you Sankey, example.
0: let me let me let me go to Chris because we just got we're short of time. Sure? But Chris, Chris, sure. your response to that.
4: Uh, well, first of all, uh, that's, not, uh, that's an, not totally indicative of what's actually happening. So the CER, the CER actually stated that they are confident in enforcing some of the strictest and safest environmental standards in the world. In fact, Canada leads the reduction in GHG and environmental protection. Further to that, they've taken advice and guidance of the Coast Salish and how to go about this. Going back to the report that stated that they had to re-enhance the project with the changes that were recommended, 156 of them to be, to be exact. So uh, to say that is, is complete um, an utter nonsense because I'm involved in the ship and have solid bitumen to the Asian markets. They're paying top dollar. And uh, this pipeline is actually built to the highest environmental standards with the blessing of the indigenous people. Now, this guy, this uh, Timothy says he respects indigenous people. I mean, he's sitting up there in a tree, yet right below him is a company called Tybo. Tybo is actually the contracting company by the semi-ammo First Nation who helped put up the fences with barbed wire to keep them out. So what does that tell you?
0: Okay, Timothy. Indigenous,
6: Indigenous people want them out. They, they've had enough it's of a, this. They need
0: to move on. I, I have on. something
6: to say about to part of this. Prosperity. Uh, go,
0: Timothy, and go I, ahead.
6: I, I cannot say, I can talk for all the First Nations people because I am not a First Nation people, but what I would like to say is that there is a hard dichotomy between what the people who are elected by the council uh, and the people who are representing the hereditary chiefs, which it looks like there's a strong divergent of opinion because the people who are elected by the council are represented of the federal government. And the people who are against the pipeline often are with the matriarch. Now, I am not a First Nation, so I cannot talk for you guys, but I, I see there's a strong divergence And um, there's so many streams that this pipeline will be crossing. And in the past, every single pipeline on Earth has always leaked. And then it will leak into okay. your rivers, into hey, your T- waters.
0: Timothy, let me ask you this real quickly. You've been up in that tree for two months. Like how how far are you determined to go with this? Like, is that tree scheduled to be cut down to make room for the for the pipeline? Or you you know this are they going to have to drag you is, out of there? Like, what's going on?
6: Yeah, this tree is very much scheduled to be cut down. Um, and when when my, is it
0: supposed when is it supposed to be cut down? You know.
6: We don't know. We don't know that um, it's, I think it's supposed to be cut down before uh, mid-March because they have to respect uh, when they cut the trees.
0: Are are you determined to stay up there?
6: Absolutely. And I'm determined to mobilize the residents of Burnaby because they will undergo very intense consequences. Let me give you just one example of what can go wrong. So at the tank farm, they have those tanks and above the tanks have a floating top and so the the top of the tank is just floating on the bitumen. And so if there was to have an earthquake, the the bitumen inside the tank would move sideways, and the tank is not made to have this bitumen move sideways, even okay. though it would during this seismic event. Okay, let me then,
0: let me go back to Chris. I hate to step on you, but just in the interest of time, uh, Chris, uh, let me go back to you to get your thoughts. I mean, you, you know, you were mentioning that. Uh, a lot of Indigenous First Nation. I mean, there's divided opinion among Indigenous people on this project. I, I think it's accurate to say, but a lot of First Nations do support it too. Uh, you know, w- what do you say to, you know, like Timothy's a non-Indigenous guy as you heard him say they're trying to block this pipeline. Like, what do you what do you think of that?
4: Well, first of all, like I, I don't think he truly understands what he's got himself in the middle of. He, whether he sh- he says he doesn't speak from or not, which he shouldn't ever at all. So the dispute amongst the the nations themselves, they need to sit down and solve that themselves. That's not up to anybody to say stuff like this. Uh, And it's ludicrous. Like, what's happening now with the Indigenous elected body is they're inheriting... Uh, the knowledge of the hereditary system to bring them in to be a part of the process. Everyone I've talked to in terms of their governing body is now taking some very sound advice from their hereditary body. But to to, to make comments like that, to throw that in there, and you claim that you're not speaking for us, but you are. And the further to that, like, these guys come from back east, like Timothy, like, we all know that you're not from Burnaby. You're not even from British Columbia. Wait a wait a sec.
0: Wait a sec, Hank. Is that true, so, Timothy?
6: This is absolutely true. Yet the consequences of this pipeline will be universal, and we must unite to go against that, the climate change because we're going into a massive crisis. We're talking about millions, if not billions, of people being displaced. Do you want this? Do you want this, Chris? To people, people that come to your country, millions of people that come to your country because their own country is burning. Like you see the the fires in California, this is just just. Mike, I gotta jump in in here,
0: Mike. Come on, like okay, Chris, go ahead.
6: Canada leads the way. Yes, we're
4: in the top ten emitters at 1.6 percent of total global emissions. Like this is just crazy. They say things are burning down. Look, indigenous people have now gained their power back. And now a lot of this resource development is now switching the light back over to the First Nations to manage to their highest level, to our highest level of standards. The greenhouse gas emission, Canada is the leader in GHG reduction and has increased okay. the carbon
6: tax. You, so. Be so, the of a, you cannot be the leader in emissions like of reducing emission if you are building new pipeline look at joe biden they're look at what joe biden, biden did on the pipeline
4: the first they're thing on the pipeline okay okay. Okay. Yeah. okay
0: guys i'm it's gonna expanding. i'm gonna i'm gonna jump in there um and say thank you to both of you for a, a really good discussion and i know you've got both got lots more to say all right. Welcome back to the show. Let's talk about some of the new travel restrictions, uh, in Canada. A lot of these new rules set to kick in on February 22nd. That's this Monday. Under the new rules, travelers returning to Canada required to take a COVID test at the airport and then go to a government supervised hotel while rating their results. And you got to pay for it too. Expected to cost up to $2,000. We've already heard about some Canadian travels, travelers forced to quarantine at hotels. Have a listen to this. This is Justin Trudeau talking on this issue.
1: We will be introducing mandatory PCR testing at the airport for people returning to Canada. Travelers will then have to wait for up to three days at an approved hotel for their test results at their own expense which is expected to be more than $2,000. All
0: right, Justin Trudeau there on these new rules. Let's discuss now with my guest. we got a great panel for you on the line, Jeffrey Rath. He's a lawyer and constitutional expert, Rath & Company in Calgary. Very pleased to welcome him to the show, Mr. Rath. Thanks for coming on.
3: Hey, Mike. Thanks for asking me.
0: You bet. Thank you. Also on the line, Paul Doroshenko. He's a lawyer at Acumen Law. He's a frequent guest here on the show. Paul, thanks. For, thank you for coming on.
8: Yeah, it's my pleasure.
0: Okay, but thanks. Thanks to both you guys, uh, Jeffrey Roth. Let me go to you first. When you hear about these rules, what goes through your mind? What's your reaction? Like, is this constitutional? Your thoughts?
3: Well, my reaction was to file an expedited judicial review to have the federal court declare that these rules are completely unconstitutional uh, in violating Section Six of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So uh, that's what we're doing.
0: Okay, you've got. A, have you got some clients that are concerned about these rules?
3: Oh, absolutely, I've been. We've been retained by uh, um, a, a gentleman that's trapped outside of Canada. That can't come home now, other than to be arbitrarily detained by uh, by Justin Trudeau. There's no explanation whatsoever as to why um, uh, people can't drive themselves home to quarantine at home. I just read the RFP for these stupid hotel jails that Trudeau set up, and apparently, um, you're allowed to take your private car. 10 kilometers from an international airport to drive yourself to one of these facilities to self-incarcerate. So tell me why it is that people can't just drive themselves home uh, on the uh, understanding that they'll immediately go to a government-approved facility as soon as they can get an appointment to get a PCR test done and return home and self-isolate um, you know, until the test results are in, okay. like every other citizen of Alberta and British Columbia. R-
0: right. So when you call it a jail or you, you call it incarceration, is that because, what, when you get to the hotel you're not allowed to leave? Like, how does this work?
3: Oh, you should see the horror stories coming out of Calgary. People are being locked up in crappy hotel rooms for 23 and a quarter hour or 23 hours and 45 minutes a day. There's one gentleman that was only allowed out 15 minutes a day. If you're locked up at the Florida Supermax, you get more yard time than people do in Trudeau's hotel jails. It's absolutely despicable what they're doing.
0: Okay, Paul Doroshenko, your thoughts.
8: Well there's no doubt that it's a charter violation right your liberty is restricted at the moment that you uh, that you land and you make that decision to have a vacation when you come back the government's going to uh... Do something to protect the public, and the issue really comes down to whether or not uh, this is uh, this is something that uh, they can, you know, the government can do. And to, to make it political is really, I, I think, you know, this hyperbole of calling it jails and calling it Trudeau jails, I think, is is not effective or useful. Really, what you're talking about here uh, is the government has been pressed by the conservative premiers in ontario and alberta to do something uh... with people who are coming back and the concern of course is that there's variants coming back and the government's trying to come up with something is this the right thing uh... and is it something that that the courts are going to say that you can do is really the question and and there is a really good legitimate question there because it is a charter violation there's no doubt about it your liberty is is restricted and you know, the court is going to look at it and, and, and decide whether or not, you know, on balance, uh, the, 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 you, res- you putting yourself in quarantine at home versus the government putting you in a, in a hotel uh, or you having to pay for a hotel, that's, you know, a government-approved hotel, uh, is really okay. something that is necessary.
0: Okay, let me go to Jeffrey Rath. Like, okay, you heard, you heard Paul Doroshenko think that, you know, calling it a jail or incarceration is o- over the top. How do you respond?
3: Well, he's obviously a card-carrying liberal. <laughs> I mean, as far as it goes. I don't, don't know about that. that but... I, don't, I, I, don't, I don't think that that's too strong. I think the reality of it is, any time a government tells you that your liberty is taken away from you and you are forced to stay in a location of the government's choosing, and in this case, adding insult to injury in violation of the WHO's own international health and travel regulations, forcing you to pay for your own incarceration... Uh, Is completely ridiculous. And I do not think that we can state this case strongly enough. And people in this country need to start rising up in outrage at what the Trudeau government is doing to Canadian
0: citizens. Well, but it's a public health emergency, right? I mean, like these charter rights. Enough is
3: enough. Enough is enough. I mean, there's mean? no excuse. There's no excuse whatsoever for depriving citizens of their liberty and treating citizens of a, of a province on a differing basis simply because Trudeau wants to punish returning travelers for taking a vacation that politicians are no longer allowed to take on a political basis.
8: Okay, This, Paul is, Dur- this Paul- is
3: punishment. This is punishment pure and uh, simple. Uh, it, it, Dur-
8: if 30 Dur- if percent if, if of males uh, died from this, you know, <laughs> between the ages of 20 and 60, we would never have a problem with. It. We would say everybody who comes back to the country, you've got to go into government isolation. Uh, but there's some people who are just basically denying the existence of the pandemic. They're denying the fact that there's 15 variants of this, uh, this uh, virus now in Alberta. These things are coming from abroad. Uh, you know, the government's got to do something. The question is whether or not this is the right something. And to characterize it as jail when it's quarantine is, frankly, ridiculous. This is a situation where people are being put in in a hotel, not the worst situation, not jail, up to three days, because they went on vacation. I agree that this looks like it 's an attempt to discourage people from traveling, and that 's unfortunate and maybe this is unconstitutional to the point where the government can 't do it. I mean, I accept that it 's unconstitutional to start with yeah. you 've got to remember there 's lots of things that are unconstitutional. Roadside breath tests are unconstitutional, but we have them we 're allowed to have them the government can the police can still do it. Why? Because people who are driving drunk are dangerous and are going to kill us well, people who are coming back with variants of this of this uh, virus are coming back with it and they're dangerous and they can kill lots of people. So yeah, there's a, okay. there a good public health issue here. The Jeffrey only Roth. issue is whether or not they balance it. And, it, right. you know, that's the argument that that Jeff is ultimately going to be making.
0: Jeff, Jeffrey, you know, Jeff you know, Roth, your it, response?
3: It's completely overstated. And to suggest a ridiculous hypothetical and bringing a sexist argument into this by saying if 30% of males in this country were dying from this, that you know, we, people would be taking a different uh, position, is completely specious. The reality of it is, this isn't polio, it's not smallpox, it's not the Spanish flu. Less, you know, the, the reality of it is, this, this, this issue is completely manageable, but the Trudeau government, from the vaccines through to their hotel jails, has mismanaged this issue from start to finish, and people in this country need to be saying enough is enough before we find that we don't have a single right left under the Charter.
0: Okay. Well, under the uh, under the charter, though, I mean, you guys are the lawyers, not me. But our, our charter rights are are not they're enshrined in in one of our most sacred documents, you know, the charter of rights and freedoms. But they're they're not absolute, right? There are, there can be limited overrides on it. Like Paul Doroshenko, let me go to you. Like, what what is your your gut feeling on this if this gets tested in court like is this a re will this will a judge look at this and say this yeah this is a public health emergency people are dying there's been twenty thousand people dead in the country yeah this is a reasonable infringement on your rights
8: well i think they can say that it's a pressing a substantial objective the problem that they're going to come up with uh and the problem that's going to be argued down the road i would imagine is whether or not it's minimally impairing the rights like, is there some other way that they can do it? And the some other way they can yeah. do it is people going home and quarantining on their own as people do across the country when they've been diagnosed as having it. You know, there's, I've had three uh, people who work with me in my office have had COVID now. They've all been quarantined uh, and managed to come back to work. And that's where the government's, you know, going to face their biggest argument, their biggest hurdle is persuading the court that this is a minimal impairment of the rights, and really, you know, as I, I agree with Jeff, it looks on the face of it uh, like the uh, like this is a, a, an intention to discourage people from traveling, and that yeah, is yeah. going to be the argument that they face. I mean, and 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 it may be it may be found uh, unconstitutional and not uh, and not permissible. Okay, uh, there's lots of things that are unconstitutional that are permissible, but Jeff- this may be one that isn't.
0: Jeffrey Rath, w- would you say that? People, if there's a quarantine restriction in place in the country, there should just be an honor system like we've largely had to this point that people just self-isolate, just allowed to go to their own home and isolate there, right?
3: Well, what what I'm saying is there's no justification under the charter for the government to have a differential system in place. So the government either incarcerates everybody for three days if they're symptomatic for COVID, or in this case, I mean, we're incarcerating people that have negative COVID tests in hand. So keep that in mind. So these people, first of all, can't get, back, get on a plane to come back to the country unless they have a fresh PCR test saying that they're negative. So what is the risk? And, and then on top of it, these people are allowed to drive up to 9.99 kilometers to a government-designated um, uh, facility in their own car. So what's the risk in letting them drive home? There isn't any. It's completely unjustifiable under the Charter, and I would imagine that if we have a fair-minded judge that isn't swayed by the interim arguments that Paul's, you know, properly putting forward that the government's going to argue that this is a pandemic, the sky is falling, people in their 80s and 90s and 100s are dropping like flies, you know, et cetera, et cetera. We have to do this to protect our poor, dying seniors that should have been protected in the first place you know, with all the hundreds of billions of dollars that have been wasted in this country, should have been protected in the first place, um, you know, sure, you know, maybe a judge could rule against this. But quite frankly, from our perspective, we have an extremely strong argument on minimal impairment. And quite frankly, okay. um, you know, I of the view that that will carry the day in court.
0: When do you expect to get this in front of a judge?
3: Well, we've written a letter to the federal court this morning, the federal government has now filed a, a notice of appearance with the federal court. And we've requested that the uh, federal court uh, you know, assign a case manager immediately to the file and that we have an immediate uh, case right. management hearing to set an expedited hearing schedule. So we're hoping to get in front of the judge within the next 30 days
0: all right welcome back to the show what's your favorite karaoke song lots of people have one but most of us are not violating public health orders by singing at an illegal karaoke party like the ones we saw shut down by the richmond rcmp over the weekend our show contributor john jang asks can karaoke be done safely john
7: Hey, good morning, Mike. Whether you like it or not, most of us have probably been to a karaoke bar at least once before. And maybe you got up and sang your heart out. Maybe you played the role of supportive friend. Maybe you just love to heckle the performers. But what should be true is that none of us have been to a karaoke bar in a very long time because that would be a violation of the current public health orders. Unfortunately, this past weekend, Richmond RCMP issued dozens of tickets totaling almost $17,000 when they had to shut down two different karaoke establishments. Over 50 individuals were given $200 fines, while a manager and organizer each received a $2,300 fine. But can karaoke be done safely? We're now joined by Virginia Lynn. She is the owner of Euphonic Entertainment, a karaoke business that has operated in and around Vancouver for over a decade. Virginia, I appreciate you giving us some time here this morning.
5: Hi, John, of course.
7: So as mentioned, two different establishments in Richmond shut down on the same weekend, thousands of dollars in fines issued as a result. What was your reaction as a fellow karaoke business owner when you heard about this story?
5: I mean... In Vancouver as a whole, the entertainment industry is taking a major hit and we're all just trying to, you know, wait out the storm and do it as safe as possible. And seeing something like that, I understand that there's the struggle and we all want to have fun and we all want to make money. But at the end of the day, we're just prolonging uh, the reopening and getting back to having that fun, safe environment.
7: When was the last time you were able to host a regular karaoke night?
5: I mean, I think March 14th of 2019 was when everything, or 2000, was it 2019, 2020, <laughs> I can't even remember, it's been so long, um, was when everything closed down, and then we had a little bit of reprieve in July of 2020, and nothing since then, and to be honest, I don't know what the new normal is going to look like, or if karaoke will ever come back the way that it used to be.
7: And especially with stories like this, there's plenty of people who are frustrated with having to stay home, social distancing, quarantines, all of it, but they're still following the rules every single day. Clearly, these individuals over the weekend knew about the rules, but shrugged their shoulders and said, ah, screw it, we don't care. It's your business that suffers as a result because people may clump all karaoke owners and all karaoke businesses into the same category.
5: I know. And it's like one apple spoils the bunch kind of situation. And when I think about the fines that are being put out there, I'm like, okay, good. Like somebody is being inconvenienced because all of us that are adhering to the rules feel like we're being massively inconvenienced with the, like you said, pandemic fatigue.
7: Is there a safe way that karaoke could be operating right now, or is it just too dangerous? Because I know in Quebec last September, the provincial government there specifically banned karaoke because of a super spreader event. And that was a result of people sharing the same microphones, being in close proximity with each other. But I'm wondering if karaoke could adapt to current COVID-19 protocols.
5: Um, I believe something like that also happened in BC that led to the close down of karaoke in July. And uh, to be honest, with all of the equipment that we bring in and everything, I tried to do the best I could by giving, you know, disposable microphone um, covers and sanitizing and only one person on the stage at a time, et etc. Um, but to be honest, I think it should just all wait until everybody can just open again. It's just... Like, I don't want to take the risk and I don't want to take the heat of being one of these places that reopens uh, before and getting scoffed at.
7: And I think that makes sense because business owners right now are trying their best to make a living, knowing that you can't guarantee 100% safety, but you try. And I'm talking all different kinds of businesses. Now, the last thing anybody wants is to know that your business might have directly led to somebody getting sick because that would have to weigh on your conscience.
5: Yeah, I mean, we had upwards of 200 people in our karaoke and just a bar for karaoke because the community is like such a family and everybody knew each other. And the last thing that I would want to do is hurt somebody that I've known that's been coming to my gigs for 10 years who brings home something to somewhere, to somewhere else, and then we're one of the super spreader events, you know. Um, And then at that point, we're looking at karaoke never coming back to normal.
7: And nobody wants that uh, when we do get back to a sense of normal, I would guess a lot of people will rush back to those entertainment options and If you love karaoke but you haven't been able to perform for a year, you probably can't wait to get back in front of a microphone and sing your heart out
5: and like letting off the steam that's been pent up for the last you know year uh it's been a it's been a difficult one in the restaurant industry and entertainment industry of trying to do. The best that we can to keep everybody safe, and that means that for me right now, I have to struggle a bit and take different avenues and do different jobs until we're back to whatever the new normal is going to be. Be it, it's for the best for everybody.
7: Now, because you haven't been able to operate your karaoke business since March last year, I understand that you've had to pivot and make a bit of a career change since. And that makes sense. If you can't work, obviously you can't make money. And like everybody else, you have payments to make. But unlike these business owners in Richmond, you have found a new way to make ends meet.
5: I mean, it was 11 years of my life owning Euphonic Entertainment and If it took a global pandemic to shut me down, so be it. I'm proud of what I've done. But yeah, we have to all pivot and go back to school or take different jobs. And that's just the reality of it right now until who knows when.
7: Well, based on those comments, I'm going to presume that Euphonic Entertainment is not finished. It may be down, but it's not out, not forever.
5: I've talked to the bars and the contracts that I've had since, and they're all waiting for me to come back and bring all of my people back and um we'll see what that looks like when it when it happens but i i don't think karaoke has gone forever
7: she is virginia lynn owner of euphonic entertainment a karaoke business that has been in operation in vancouver for over a decade virginia appreciate you giving us some time here today and best of luck moving forward
5: of course thanks so much you as well